Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you now that we can dig into your word once again here tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to understand this topic of the judgment, that you would see that, help us to see that we're living in the hour of judgment, and that, uh, and that you want to be our advocate, Lord, that you want to be our defender. And um, we thank you so much, Lord, for your sacrifice of your son. We pray that you would bless us now and give us wisdom and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. So last night, um, we covered signs of the second coming of Jesus. And uh, we saw that there are many signs that are taking place that help us to know that Jesus is coming soon. Revelation, we look at this verse here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. And uh, here Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. So Jesus is coming soon, he's coming quickly. And he's bringing his reward with him. Now, if Jesus is coming back with his reward, then he has to determine who gets the reward before he comes. Does that make sense? This process is known as the judgment. And judgment is seen all throughout the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In Acts 17.31, it tells us that God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world. Notice that it's in the future tense. He will judge the world. This is future from the time of the apostles. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given, the, given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Solomon sums up his entire book of Ecclesiastes in two verses. He says this in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and do what? Keep His commandments, for this is man's all. The King James says, This is the whole duty of man. And in verse 14 it continues. It says, For God will bring every work in the judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So these verses right here clearly tell us that one day there will be a judgment. Judgment is all throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning. We just saw that in our last presentation. And God came down and saw what had taken place. And the penalty was declared. The wages of sin is death. And before God sent the flood on the earth, God came down to see what was taking place. And based on the evidence, God decided what would happen next. Judgment. A flood. At the Tower of Babel, God came down to investigate what was taking place there. And he decreed, and then he decreed what would happen as a consequence. God came down and saw what was happening at Sodom and Gomorrah, and God passed judgment. And fire and brimstone came down. While on the island of Patmos, John saw in vision that at the time of the end, there would be a last day worldwide message of judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Revelation 14, 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, an angel in the book of Revelation is symbolic of a messenger. Notice that this 
that this angel flies in the midst of heaven, up where he can be seen, and he speaks with a loud voice, showing that this is a message that God wants everybody to hear. The angel has the everlasting gospel, the good news of salvation. It's made available to everybody by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? But the message is also a message of judgment. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, the angel continues. He says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Well, to fear God is to obey God. It's to reverence God. It's to honor God in all of our ways, all of our actions, all of our thoughts. It's to be in awe of God. We can glorify God with how we live our lives. The verse continues, it says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Now, the hour of judgment refers to the final time period before the return of Jesus. The hour is not a single moment or a literal hour of time. And according to Scripture, it's the... According to Scripture, the hour of His judgment precedes the hour to reap, which is found later in the same chapter in verse 15, as you can see there on the screen. And the hour to reap is the time in which the harvest is brought in at the second coming of Jesus. So that's the kind of language that, that the Bible uses when it refers to the second coming. It's, it's the time to reap. Thus, the judgment hour message in Revelation 14.7 must precede the hour to reap in Revelation 14.15. Clearly, this message of judgment is also a message of mercy to help the world get right with God while there's still time. Not only does the book of Revelation speak about the judgment, but the, also the book of Daniel as well. These two books go so closely, they, they fit so closely together. In fact, in the book of Daniel, God tells us when and where the judgment would begin. In the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel describes a vision that God gave to him. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, Daniel writes, He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So who are these ten thousand times ten thousand beings? They're angels, friends. And so where is this, where is this judgment taking place? taking place in heaven. It's around the throne of God. There's all these angels, 10,000 times 10,000, an innumerable amount, basically. So here we see judgment language. The court is seated and the books are open. What book, you ask? Well, it's the book of life. You can see it throughout the book of Revelation. I believe it's mentioned eight or nine times just in the book of Revelation alone, the book of life. That's where we want our names written, Amen. Clearly, there will be judgment according to the Bible. And it will happen before Christ comes back to give his rewards. Before Jesus comes again to pronounce men and women either saved or lost. Before he comes again to raise the righteous dead. Before all of that, Christ will say to the onlooking universe, Look at my fairness. Look at my goodness. The books are open for you to see. 
He'll say, I sent my Holy Spirit to that man's heart. I impressed that woman. I wrapped my arms of love around them. I tried to save them. I did everything I possibly could. Could I have done anything more? Then the entire universe will acknowledge that God did everything that he possibly could to save each and every one of us. You see, friends, the judgment is not for God to find out who's saved or who's lost. Because God already knows that. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. But the judgment is to reveal God's character of love before the whole universe. So that in all eternity, we will never have a doubt of the character of God. One thing that's obvious as you read this passage, and that is this, is that God's judgment is incredibly fair. Because here the record books are open for the whole universe. Each, here each case is reviewed. And we saw in our first presentation here tonight that Lucifer also known as Satan, led a rebellion in heaven against God, and he and his angels were ultimately kicked out of heaven. We saw that, God, that Satan challenged God's authority. We saw that he challenged the government of God, and then he said that God was unfair, that God was unjust. And that rebellion in heaven introduced a question to the whole universe, a question about God's fairness, a question about God's integrity, and a question about God's character. But friends, God is so fair and God is so just that he opens the records of each person before the onlooking universe so that all can see that anyone who is lost is lost because of their own choices. No one is lost because God made an arbitrary choice to save some and destroy others. Then those who will be saved understand during the millennium why some are saved and why some are lost. We'll talk more about that in upcoming nights. We saw earlier tonight that the major theme of the book of Revelation is the conflict, the great cosmic conflict that's going on right now, the battle between Christ and Satan, a battle between good and evil. And in this conflict between Christ and Satan, the judgment reveals the truth, the truth about God. And Satan will be exposed as a liar because God reveals in the judgment that he has done everything he possibly can to save, and that Satan has done everything he can to destroy. Anyone that is lost is not lost because God pointed the finger at them and said, you're lost. They're lost because of their own decisions. They're, they're lost because of their own choices. They're lost because they rejected God's grace and mercy. If we don't see a loved one in heaven, we would want to know why, wouldn't we? We would want to know why our loved ones aren't there. And since God is so fair, God opens up the books, the record books, and during the millennium in heaven, which, which will tell us the reasons why some are there and why some aren't. There we will get all of our questions answered. But some of you may be wondering, well, when does this pre-advent judgment take place? Well, friends, we know that it must take place before the second coming because Christ is coming with his reward, he says. But what does the book of Daniel say about this? That's where, that's where this vision came from, Daniel chapter 7, right? Well, Daniel chapter 7 doesn't tell us when it begins or when it ends, but Daniel chapter 8 does. So let's go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. It says, For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. 
So what does that mean for the sanctuary to be cleansed? Well, in the Bible you read about two sanctuaries. There's one on earth and there's one in heaven. The earthly sanctuary was a portable sanctuary that God's people took with them as they wandered through, through the wilderness, as they were on their way from Egypt into the promised land. Later it was replaced by the temple, and the earthly temple was designed by God to teach his people the plan of salvation. There were sacrifices, there were feasts, there were priests, and there was a high priest, and she wore beautiful garments. Everything about the sanctuary was deeply symbolic and had great meaning. Earthly sanctuary and its services were given by God so that his people could learn how God deals with the sin problem and how he saves people for eternity. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God said to Moses, he said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Friends, God wanted to be with his people. We saw earlier in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says that sin separated us from God. And God wanted to be with his people just like he had been with them, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. But instead he had to dwell among them in the, in the temple, there in the tabernacle. And in the very next verse, in verse 9, God says, According to all that I show you, he's talking to Moses here, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so shall you make it. So the earthly sanctuary was built according to certain plans that God gave to Moses to follow. There was a blueprint that God gave him, and it was modeled after the heavenly sanctuary. Now the sanctuary was very significant. The Jewish way of life, the Jewish way of life was based around the sanctuary service. The sanctuary was surrounded by an outer wall that comprised two rooms. There was the holy place and the most holy place. Outside the two rooms, we have the altar of sacrifice. You can see the arrow there pointing to the altar of sacrifice. Then we have the laver, where the priests would wash themselves to be pure in order to enter into the holy place. Then inside the holy place, there was the table of showbread, which, which taught the truth that Jesus is the bread of life. Then there was the seven-branched candlestick, which represented Jesus as the light of the world. In front, as they went in, there was the altar of incense. And that incense that ascends up toward God represents our prayers going up to God. It's mixed with the fragrant incense of the righteousness of Christ. The second compartment was called the Most Holy Place, and it contained the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe some of you have heard of that phrase, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Law of God, known as the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ten Commandments was the Mercy Seat. And I'm so glad, friends, that there's the Mercy Seat. Amen? I'm glad that Law and Mercy go together, because if it was all Law, we would be hopeless. Not that we should be presumptuous at all, but where we stumble and fall, God offers us mercy. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now the priest ministered in the holy place every day out of the year. But the high priest went into the most holy place only one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. That was the day that the sanctuary was to be cleansed. And the cleansing of the sanctuary was like judgment day for the people of God. The Day of Atonement was the day that the sins of the people were blotted out. Throughout the year, sinners would take their sacrifices, often a lamb to the sanctuary. Now, this is very different from us uh, in our world today. None of us take a lamb and, 
and do all of that, but uh, bear with me here, try, try to understand this. So they would take their sacrifices there to the temple, and the sinner would confess their sins over the lamb. This is what God showed them to do. And the lamb would then be killed, its throat would be cut, and the blood would flow. God wanted them to know that sin brings death. And as the sin was confessed over the lamb, the sin was symbolically transferred from the sinner to the lamb. The priest would then take some of that sin-laden blood and they would sprinkle it on the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And remember, this happens daily. This would happen every day out of the year, except, um, I believe, except on the Day of Atonement. In that way, the sin was transferred, actually it was on the, the Day of Atonement as well. In that way, the sin was transferred into the sanctuary and sinners were no longer on, under condemnation for their sins. But the sin was on record inside the sanctuary until the Day of Atonement, which was one day out of the year. On the Day of Atonement, there was a special service in which even the record of sin was blotted out. And the truly repentant sinner had their record of sin blotted out. On the Day of Atonement, repentant sinners were at one with God. They were at peace with God. While those who had not repented were cut off, they were actually evicted outside of the congregation of the Israelites. One Jewish scholar described Judgment Day as a crisis of confession and repentance. It was serious business for the Israelites, this Day of Atonement was. They wanted to know if they were right with God. So when Daniel wrote, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Every Hebrew would have known what he was talking about. This was familiar language to them. They knew that Judgment Day would be coming one day. The book of Hebrews also talks about the sanctuary, and they describe what the priest did and, and what the high priest was supposed to do. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says this. It says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priest always, or every day, went into the first compartment, or to the first part of the tabernacle. Which, which part was that? That would be the holy place, right? The second compartment is most holy. So they went to the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. So the priest would go in there to the holy place every day out of the year, but only the high priest would go into the most holy place, and he would do that once a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And the verse continues, it says, Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So that was the earthly sanctuary service. But what about the heavenly sanctuary? What is Jesus doing for us right now? It's a good question, isn't it? The Bible says that Jesus is our heavenly high priest. He ministers not in an earthly temple, but he ministers in the temple in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 tells us, For Christ has not entered into holy places, that is, the sanctuary, made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. For who? For us. For us. Those, those two words there at the end are so important, friends. Christ is there in the heavenly sanctuary for you and for me. That's very important for us to remember. Hebrews 4.4 also helps us to understand what Jesus is doing for us at this time. It says, Seeing then we have 
a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, this verse is good news. You can come to God boldly in prayer at any time of the day to obtain mercy and to obtain grace. You can have confidence because you have a high priest in heaven. And just as there was a sanctuary on earth, there's a sanctuary in heaven. It's a pattern of, that, that's what the earthly sanctuary was, was a pattern of the heavenly. And just as the earthly sanctuary was cleansed, the heavenly sanctuary will also be cleansed. The judgment simply referred, reveals what you've done with your opportunity with, with Jesus. It reveals what you, your opportunity to choose Jesus. The judgment shows whether those who have called themselves Christians are really Christians or not. The judgment acts much like an audit. So the question is, is when would this judgment or cleansing of the sanctuary take place? Let's look again at Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. The Bible says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So what is the meaning of these 2,300 days? It's a good question, isn't it? This, this is different language for us here. But Daniel didn't understand this either, friends. And so he actually prayed, and God sent an angel to come down and explain this prophecy to him. And it says this. It says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he, that is Gabriel, said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to when? The time of the end. The vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, and with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. Verse 26, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which is told is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So from this passage we infer three things from the vision from Gabriel in the context of this passage. First, the vision speaks about the end of time, or the time of the end. Secondly, it's talking about a heavenly sanctuary where God's throne is set. And thirdly, the 2300 days refers to many days in the future, and it happens at the time of the end. Therefore, this time period is not a literal time period, but it's a symbolic time period. What do I mean by this? What do I mean by a symbolic time period? Well, the prophecy foretells of a time period of 2,300 days. So if these 2,300 days are literal, that's only about six years. So they can't be literal a literal six years from Daniel's day, because that would have been around 550 B.C., and uh, if you only go six years from 550 B.C., that would take you down to 544 B.C., which is definitely not the time of the end. Would you agree? Yep. <laughs> Ezekiel was another prophet who was a contemporary of Daniel. He was alive at the same time. He gives us a key on how to interpret prophetic days. God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, He says, Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for each year. 
In Bible prophecy, friends, a day represents a year. Now, that's not every time you read the word day in the Bible. I just want to make that clear. It's, it's, it's especially when you're talking about Bible prophecy in the books of Daniel and Revelation. When you, when you read the word day throughout the rest of Scripture, it uh, typically is referring to a 24 literal uh, time period like we have today. But we, but we recognize that Bible prophecy uses symbols to represent things. For instance, when you're studying Daniel or Revelation and you read about beasts coming up out of the sea, are those literal beasts? Or would they be symbolic? They would be symbolic, right? They represent kings or kingdoms. Another example of the day uh, for a year principle is found in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, which says, According to the number of the days in which you spied out the lands, 40 days, each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. In this prophecy, Israel was told that it would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This was because of the spies who went into the promised land uh, and they were there for 40 days and they came back with a negative report and a very discouraging one at that. Thus, everyone but Caleb and Joshua died in the wilderness during those 40 years. So in this instance, we see the 40 days represented 40 years, a day for each year. So we've seen from these two examples that in Bible prophecy, one symbolic day equals one literal year. Therefore, the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14 would represent 2300 years. So when would these 2300 years begin? Well, if the Bible gives us a starting point, then we can easily calculate the ending point. Then we would know exactly when the cleansing of the sanctuary would begin, as well as the judgment hour. This prophecy in the book of Daniel is very significant, friends, because God ties this prophecy about Jesus' second coming with an incredible prophecy about his first coming. And amazingly, we can actually measure events that Daniel predicted that would happen along this 2,300-year timeline. This, this very prophecy that we're looking at predicted the exact date of Christ's baptism. <coughs> The exact date for Christ's crucifixion. The exact date for the gospel to go to the Gentiles as the Jewish leaders rejected Christianity. And it even tells us the date that the judgment would begin. Daniel didn't know when this 2300 year prophecy would begin and he was having difficulty understanding it. So once again, Daniel prayed. And a chapter later in Daniel chapter 9 verse 23, an angel came to Daniel and said this. He said, at the beginning of your supplications, that is, at the beginning of Daniel's prayer, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. God loved Daniel. He was wanting to reveal this to him so that he could write it down, so that we can also read it in our day. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. God wanted Daniel to be able to understand this. The vision that the angel is referring to here is the one in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel hadn't understood the vision prior to this, so the angel came in chapter 9 to explain it. Then the angel said, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So, the question is, is who were Daniel's people? Can you help me out? Israel. It would have been Israel. It would have been the Jews, right? And what was their holy city? 
Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem. So the first seven years of this prophecy were determined for the Jews. Now the Old Testament the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew word translated determined literally means amputated or cut off. So the question is, cut off from what? Well, it would be cut off from the longer time period of the 2300 days. We'll explain here. So the first 70 weeks apply especially to Daniel's people, the Jews. So the angel says, 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people, the Jews, and for your holy city, which would be Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now clearly all of this could not have happened in one year and four months or 70 literal weeks. There's just way too much happening here for it to happen in 70 literal weeks. So again, using our key here in Bible prophecy of one symbolic day equaling one literal year, we can understand this prophecy. So you have 70 weeks times seven days each week, which equals 490 days. And with one symbolic day equaling one literal year, the 70 weeks, or the 490 days, would equal 490 years. So God was giving Israel 490 years for them to come to repentance. So when did the 490 years begin and end? Well, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 tells us. It says, Know therefore and understand that, go, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. That would be a total of sixty-nine weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So from the time of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would be sixty-nine weeks or 493, sorry, 483 years. So where do we find this decree? Well, it's actually found in the book of Ezra chapter 7. That's the decree that Artaxerxes gave when, when Artaxerxes told Nehemiah that he could go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So when was this decree issued? Well, it was issued in 457 B.C. That's the date that's been nailed down in history. And we know this because the Persians were meticulous at keeping records. So we know that our starting point is 457 B.C. And it goes until Messiah the Prince, which would be 483 years. Those 483 years would bring us down to the year 27 A.D. And this is bearing in mind that the timeline of history goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. with no year zero. Okay? So there was no year zero. This went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. So let's do some Bible math here together, okay? I know this is complicated stuff. We are recording these presentations. You'll have a handout. So, but we want to make things as clear as possible together. So let's do some Bible math. When we start in 457 B.C., when the decree was issued, and we add 69 weeks, or 483 years, we get to 27 AD. The Messiah should appear in 27 AD. Now the word Messiah means anointed one. And when was Jesus anointed? Baptism. He was anointed at his baptism. And when was that? Well, let's see what the Bible says, friends. 
The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's when Jesus was baptized. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And later in the same chapter, it says that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And historians point that year to A.D. 27. So friends, this is amazing because that means that Jesus was baptized right on time, as Daniel had foretold, in accordance with the prophetic word of God. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized, and shortly after his baptism, he says this. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now what time is he talking about? Well, Jesus could have said that the time prophecy has been fulfilled, right on time. But when Jesus was baptized, he couldn't say, I'm the Messiah, or they would have probably killed him at that moment. It would have been very damaging to his ministry if he would have come out that early on and said that. Instead, he, he prodded them, saying, the time is fulfilled. He was announcing himself as the Messiah, but he was doing it in a gentle way. Jesus was referring to the time prophecy that we're looking at in Daniel chapter 9. But that same prophecy predicted more of what would happen to the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, the word of God says that after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Friends, Jesus was cut off when he died on the cross for you and I. Then verse 27 says, Then he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering. Jesus would confirm the covenant with many for one week, for seven years. But it says, but in the middle of the week, the Bible says that he would cause the sacrifices to cease. How did Jesus do that? Well, friends, when Jesus died on the cross, the sacrificial system came to an end. That's why we don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore. Praise the Lord. Amen? Because the true Lamb of God came, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple... When he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. You can find that in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. At that time, God was saying there's no more sacrificial system, no more temple services, it's done. So let's take a few moments now to review this amazing time prophecy, okay? I know it's complicated, but we're trying to make it as simple as possible. There's a decree that went out in 457 B.C. to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? Then, after 69 weeks, the Messiah would be anointed, which happened at Jesus' baptism in the fall of A.D. 27. Then he died on the cross for you and for me in the middle of the 70th week, which was 31 A.D. The 70 weeks could, would then end in 34 A.D. So what happened at the end of these 70 weeks? Well, remember... God gave 490 years for Israel to come to repentance. But as a nation, did Israel repent? No, they did not. They rejected the Messiah as a nation. Yes, individuals repented, but as a whole, the nation rejected Christ as the Messiah. The Bible makes this very clear in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Here, Paul, Paul and Barnabas 
mighty men of God were preaching and they said this. They said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, that is, the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to who? We turn to the Gentiles. So the privileges of the gospel were extended first to Israel as God's special people, but, at, but Israel as a nation did not fulfill its God-appointed role. After Stephen was stoned, the privileges of the gospel went to the entire world. Friends, this prophecy is amazing proof that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus came right on time. The chances of all this happening are just too remote. It's just not possible. This prophecy can give us additional confidence that God's word can be trusted and that Jesus is the true Messiah. This whole prophecy is about Jesus. So why is it important for us to understand this? Well, friends, it was once misinterpreted. It was interpreted, misinterpreted once before. It was misunderstood. You see, the first half of this prophecy, the 490 years, was designed to get the people ready for the first coming of Christ. Yet when Jesus came to this earth, the people rejected him, didn't they? They did not welcome him like they should have. The second half of this prophecy is designed to help prepare God's people for the second coming of Jesus. But in earth's last days, people are going to get confused once again. And they will be rejecting Jesus Christ, and they're going to be embracing Antichrist. But friends, we don't want to be confused. And the way not to be confused or deceived is to check everything out for yourself. Amen? Don't just uh, believe these things just because I say it, but be like the New Testament Bereans and study these things out for yourselves. The Bereans were a group of people in the New Testament that studied the things out, even the things that Paul was preaching to them. They would go back and they would check and make sure it was based in Scripture. So I would encourage you to do the same. And as we do, friends, I believe that, that, that you will see that we have a high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. You'll see that he's dispensing his grace, he's, his mercy, and his love, and his forgiveness for you and I. The prophecy points to Jesus, our Savior on earth and our mediator in the sanctuary above. Now let's look at this prophecy again, and we'll see the rest of the 2300-year prophecy. So we start in 457 B.C. with the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Then we add 490 years. That takes us to 34 A.D. Then the gospel, at that time, the gospel goes to the Gentiles at the stoning of Stephen. Then there are still 1,810 years left. And that brings us down to the year 1844. So for more than 170 years, we've been living in the time of heaven's final judgment, the judgment hour. Jesus is now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, ministering on our behalf. And that's good news, friends. He's there for us, as we saw earlier. And we cannot, we cannot afford to be like the people in Christ's day who missed this prophecy. Notice the prophecy doesn't tell us when Jesus is coming back, but it does tell us that we're living in the time of the judgment hour. We're living in the time of the end. So what will the judgment do? It will reveal the decisions that you made for or against God. The judgment reveals whether your sins have been blotted out or whether you've chosen to cling to your sins and turn your back on Jesus. Today, we can be ready to meet Jesus 
when he comes back. Because we have a Savior in heaven who's representing us in the judgment. And that is good news, friends. He's there for you and for me. There's nothing to fear when you're with God. We can face the judgment with confidence, with gladness, because we have a high priest in heaven. Yes, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But praise the Lord, He's the Savior. Amen? Amen. The Bible says, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us, Therefore He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He, lived, since he always lives to make intercession. For who? For them, for us. Jesus is standing in heaven right now, interceding for you and for me. He'll represent you in the judgment if you let him. And the good news, friends, is that he's never lost a case. Not one. As Jesus speaks to your heart tonight, be sure to let him know that you choose him to be your heavenly high priest, your friend, and your savior in the sanctuary above during heaven's final judgment. Then and only then, friends, can you face the judgment with confidence. And that's what we want. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I know the material we covered tonight is pretty heavy, Lord. It's a lot of information. But Lord, we thank you that we are living in the judgment hour. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that you came right on time according to Bible prophecy. Lord, and we believe that because you came on time the first time, you're going to come on time the second time. And Lord, we pray that you would represent us in heaven's final judgment. Lord, we are sinful people. Lord, we desperately need you as our Savior. We're so grateful, Lord, that you, that you love the world so much, Lord, that you sent your only begotten Son to die on the cross for me, for us, for each and every one of us. And Lord, we accept that sacrifice of your Son here today. Lord, we pray that you would be our advocate in this judgment that's taking place. And Lord, we pray for our loved ones. We pray for those that may not know you at this time. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in their lives, Lord, that you would bring people to yourself, that there could be a mighty harvest when you come, Lord, that there would be a great multitude of people ready and waiting when you come. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.